really good to see you all this morning and uh, we're just going to spend the next little while looking at this passage. That'd be great if you had it on, on your phone or if you want a hard copy, there are some Bibles dotted about the place, you can help yourself. Very important that you've got the text in front of you because I'm going to be making a number of comments about it and you've got to be the judge. You're supposed to test the spirits, right? How are you going to do that if you haven't got the actual words in front of you? So uh, it'd be very good if you've got the words, uh, words in front of you. Uh, just a couple of comments before we start. Um, the book stall is uh, available at the end of the service and we've got uh, a book that we're recommending this month, How to Pray by Pete Gregg. Um, excellent both in instructing you how and, uh, and giving you uh, practical guidance but also some motivation. And if, like me, you need all the motivation you can get because there's always a thousand other things that seem more pressing than prayer uh, because of the weakness of my understanding of things, then uh, a book like this is really good. So I recommend it to you. It's on there along with a load of other books that we've got, all of which uh, we recommend as good, healthy reading. And just a moment to reflect on what we're doing this evening. So this evening we've got the next of our Elephant in the Room uh, talks. And I'll be addressing this evening the next in our series, Sex Rules. And um, we'll be thinking a little bit about the dynamics of desire and what, why God gave us desire, sexual desire and other forms of desire, what impact the corruption of our human nature has had on it, how our, how our culture understands desire and uh, whether Christians, to, to what extent as Christians we see things differently. And I think the, the, the goal of these talks is to really get you thinking and engaging with what the Bible says. As we'll see a little later on, there are a million voices out there speaking with utter confidence about all sorts of things. Yeah, you go on the internet for more than five minutes, you will be bamboozled with, uh, with all sorts of stuff. How, how important is it that we think seriously? Because the, chance, the, the danger is that we get infected with all sorts of ideas which we've picked up, which actually sound plausible, but they don't measure up to God's word and actually on deeper reflection, are perhaps not so helpful. So that's the goal for this evening. Do come along if you're, if you're able to. I think it'll be a helpful time together. Now, we're coming into land, really, with our series in 1 John. Just a couple more talks after this one. And today, uh, we're particularly thinking about the significance of Christian teaching, the Bible's teaching, and how that distinguishes between authentic Christianity and inauthentic expressions of Christianity. Next slide, please. So uh, we've pointed out again and again that essentially the context in which John writes this letter is there's been a split. A bunch of people have gone off, and we're going to get some insights into what they were split, splitting about. Uh, a bunch of people have gone off into, uh, and, and left the church. It's caused a lot of grief. But John's really addressing the question, how can you be sure that you've got the right version of Christianity? These folk over there think they've got the right version of Christianity. So who's right and who's wrong? And that question is a profound one for any thinking person. And I hope you're all thinking persons. Because we're surrounded by people who think all sorts of things, right? So how do we know what we think is right? Uh, I was reading, uh, I was looking at a Christian, I've got a Christian magazine on my desk. It's got a leading Christian figure on the front of it, and I won't say who, because I'm not trying to cause, uh, I'm not trying to damage their reputation at all. 
But essentially what, what, he, what he says, the quote on the front is, I'm not saying that anything I believe is true, it's just how I see things at the moment. That's what he says. I'm not saying anything I believe is true, it's just how I see things at the moment. Now that, for those of you interested in such things, is a classic expression of relativism. Or if you prefer, postmodern epistemological relativism. Which is essentially saying, well I'm just one person and I'm surrounded by all these other people, how could I possibly know that I'm right? To which I would respond, that, there's some truth in that of course, there needs to be some humility uh, in, in the views that we hold and we need to listen to alternative views. But if you really took that down the line, you'd never do anything. I mean, you certainly wouldn't get on a plane, for example, because you wouldn't know for sure that this pilot can fly the plane. How would you know? How could you possibly know anything? Well, uh, what John, and in common with the other Bible teachers, say about Christianity is simply this. We saw the risen Christ. We touched him. And uh, as, um, I'm not sure who who the quote originates from, I know where I heard it, a person with an experience is not at the mercy of a person with an argument. These apostles went to their graves proclaiming, very often went to their graves because of their testimony, and they absolutely would not uh, change their minds about it. That needs to be taken seriously. And so the first test of authentic Christianity is does what this person, what, what this, this Christian is claiming to believe cohere with the apostolic testimony that we have in the New Testament? That's how the books of the New Testament were recognised. The test was of apostolicity. Does what is contained in this letter, in this gospel, because there were many, many documents circulating, cohere with what John and Peter and Paul were teaching? If it does, into the New Testament it went. If it didn't, it was excluded. So we're going to be thinking about that particular test. Now the other two tests that we've been looking at and we'll come back to, uh, heartfelt love. So John says the authentic Christian will be a person of deep love for others rooted in a transforming experience of the love of God. And thirdly, a lifestyle, spirit-empowered lifestyle of genuine righteousness, purity, holiness and obedience. This is authentic Christianity. Other options are on offer, but they fail the test of actually being rooted in the life and ministry of Jesus as revealed by the apostles. So these three tests, now to some extent these three tests bleed into each other and you'll see that in this passage. John is not a very sort of uh, systematic thinker, he's much more of a creative thinker. So Uh, The command that he appeals to for obedience is the command to love one another, for example. We see that uh, in this passage to some extent. All right. So let's start then by looking at these first six verses. And um, the key phrase, I think, the the six verses at the start of chapter 4, Beloved, he's talking to those he dearly loves. Next slide, please. Um, Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So first of all, let's just think about the situation they were in. They were in a situation where people had come into the church teaching a different understanding of Christianity, and we can look briefly at what that might have been in a little while. Uh, 
and, and lots of the church had disappeared off to follow this, this teaching. And so John is recognising the fact that there's not just one, uh, or one um, message. There are millions of messages out there. For them it was a choice between two. For us it is a choice between a constellation of ideas that are out there over the 2,000 years of the church. All sorts of opinions have surfaced. And then, of course, if we step outside the boundaries of the church into our culture... Um, well, all the cultures of the world have massively different perspectives on what it means to live a good life, what it means to have a good society. And so John recognises that we Christians, the Christians of his day and us today, live in contested space. There's a war going on in, the, in our cultures all the time. Maybe war is too strong. There's a contest going on as different ideas bash into each other. And unless we're discerning, we are easy prey. For the last thing, they said about John Major, it was said about him in his leadership, that he bore the imprint of the last person who'd sat on him. And I've heard it said of other political leaders. I think that's funny, by the way. You can laugh at that if you want. Uh, they say of other leaders that the most powerful person in the country was the last person to talk to them. Because they had no filter or ability to um, uh, discern the messages they were receiving. Whatever had been said forcefully to them, they just believed it. And John is saying, don't be like that. Develop the ability to test what you're hearing. Does it cohere with the apostolic teaching or does it not? The word of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Down the centuries there have been all manner of ideas about what it means to live the good life. Now, on the other hand, you might say, as many postmodern men and women do, oh my goodness, there's so many ideas out there, how could I possibly know which one of them is true. I surrender. I'll just believe what everyone around me believes because it's easiest. That's in, a, in essence what most people in our culture are doing. They're not thinking deeply about stuff. They're tending to just go down the line of least resistance. It's always easiest to believe what other people around you believe. That's always easy. And sometimes you'll be right and sometimes you'll be wrong. But as I used to say to me when I was in, in the Sunday school at my church, a dead fish just goes with the flow. A live one swims upstream. Do you want to be someone who just accepts the culture of the day? The church often falls into it. Church often, often falls into adapting its message to fit the culture it's in. But it's a very wise saying. He who marries the spirit of the age will be a widower in the next when John says, test the spirits, or if he says, discerning between the spirit of God and the spirit of falsehood, first of all, he is saying, does it cohere with the testimony of the apostles? So here, the test is orthodoxy. Is this orthodox Christian teaching? Now, let me give you one hint as to how to smell a rat in something you're being taught. Every culture has its own priorities, okay? 
we'll be thinking about this this evening actually, our culture has particular priorities when it comes to desire and sexual desire in particular. If you find churches amending their teaching so that it is less offensive to the culture, I'm not saying it's definitely wrong, but be suspicious. Because it's convenient. Now, it might be that the culture is asking a question that we've not thought of before. And if that's the case, then we need to, evaluate, we need to be open to that. But more likely, it is simply that cultural pressure is exerting on Christian belief and causing Christians to cave in a particular area. Remember what Paul says? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be suspicious when the church starts to adopt, adapt its teaching to fit more comfortably with the spirit of the age. It's dangerous. And it's easy. All right. That's one test. So orthodoxy is one test. There's another test you should apply that Jesus lays out in Matthew 7. Look at the fruit that comes from the teaching and the lifestyle associated with any particular leader or any particular new teaching. Ask yourself, if actually all Christians adopted this teaching, what would happen? Jesus said there are many people, false prophets, gone out into the world, exactly like John says here. And they'll even say, Lord, Lord, and they'll even do miracles in Jesus' name. But watch out, because Jesus will say sometimes to some of these folk, none of it was authorised. As I was reflecting on this, I was thinking, is my ministry authorised by Jesus? That's a question every Christian leader should, in humility, ask. So what's the fruit of this teaching? What's the fruit of the lifestyle? Is this a lifestyle which, if everybody adopted it, would bless society and would enable us as Christians to be salt and light? Or is this a lifestyle that if everybody adopted it would cause destruction? In particular, how would this teaching affect the vulnerable in society? Does it push people to look at, in mercy upon those who are poor? Or is it, is it actually just... Um, is it something which is just affirming them in their selfishness? These are the sorts of questions we should be asking. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. There is the spirit of falsehood and the spirit of truth. It goes without saying, therefore, we should be familiar with this. If we believe it's God's word, we've got to be reading it. And for goodness sake, don't believe everything you read on the internet. If you really want to grasp what the Bible says, and in addition to reading it, I, some really good sites for you. I would definitely recommend you, you spend the next year or two just immersing yourself in the Bible project. You will understand the Bible much, much better after even an hour of watching the videos. They are fantastic. So there are really good, reliable sites. If you want me to recommend others, I'm very happy. Just send me an email. I'll make some more recommendations. Don't go search. The thing about the internet is, if you've got an opinion that you want to affirm yourself in, it's really easy, because you can find people who agree with you. It just becomes an echo chamber. And the internet's really good at that. I'm no expert in these things, but I understand the search engines will even work out the sort of sites you like to go to and send you to more of them. 
and you develop the idea, well, everybody agrees with me. They don't, actually. It's just you never come across the people who disagree with you. Get wise in your use of the, use of the internet, particularly for Christian purposes. All right. I can say more on it, but let's, let's move on. Secondly, we are told that there's another test, that we have to be obedient. That surfaces in this, uh, in this talk. Can I have the next slide, please? Um, Paul says that God's commands are not burdensome. I thought, I just put that in because I thought you might enjoy it. Do you think that's been photoshopped or do you think it's real? I, um, it sort of probably fails some kind of uh, animal, uh, it certainly fails some kind of test of treating animals decently, doesn't it? Next slide, please. I think our culture around us is constantly telling us freedom is found in liberty from rules. No rules, freedom. And so when people dismiss Christianity, they very often dismiss it because they think it's this. Christianity is a bunch of rules. I'm being asked to kind of somehow, and it makes me feel guilty. Why would I want to feel like that? Get rid of the rules and I'll be happy. There's a band that I used to listen to when I was younger called James. Some of you will know of them. They had a song called Ring the Bells. And this song, Ring the Bells, was this. Ring the bells, as in ring the church bells, to announce that that something good is happening. But it's not to come to worship God. Ring the bells, I no longer feel God is watching over me. That's to be celebrated. God's not there evaluating my actions. I can do as I please and suddenly... The burden rolls away. I can just live as I want. Do what I want. No one's there to judge me. Now this is... uh, This this way of thinking doesn't stack up to more than 60 seconds thought. How can you build a society if everybody is just doing exactly what they want? Well, that's what we're busy trying to do in the West. And I invite you to evaluate the success of it. Um, Satan would very much like everyone to think that Christianity is this and he would like preachers like me to preach that. Because the truth is, the Bible is very clear that rules in and of themselves, even though they are good, Jesus himself said, the law is righteous and holy and true. That's what Paul said. That's what Jesus, Jesus said. I've not come to dispense with the rules. Don't think that. In fact, if you, if you break even the smallest of the rules and teach others to do the same, you'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven, he said. Jesus is very pro the rules, and so is Paul. The Ten Commandments, the instructions to live a holy life, make no mistake, they are very much in place. But the good news is not that there are no rules. The good news is that Christ will forgive you graciously when you fail to live up to them. And so in reality, the picture we should have of our obedience is this. Next slide, please. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. It's light. I love this picture. So that's meant to be a yoke there. Two oxen would have their heads poked through and they would uh, do the ploughing. I'm getting onto my, the, the outer edges of my understanding of agriculture. But the two, ancient agriculture, but the oxen would plough together. 
And Jesus says, come with me and we'll plough together. I'll help you. When you mess it up, I'll sort it out for you if you're humble and you seek my forgiveness. And I'll teach you what it means to live your life in a straight line. Now, if I invited you to get into partnership with Jesus like that, surely that's quite appealing. This is what we're called to do. Now, any version of Christianity that teaches there are no rules, do what you like, that is not authentic Christianity. But equally, any version of Christianity that teaches you by your own moral self-effort, you have to live uh, you have to obey the rules. That's not Christianity either. Christianity is a third way where Jesus says, these are the rules, you won't be able to live them, I'll forgive you when you get them wrong, but the deal is you have to be yoked to me and then I'll start to teach you. And when you go wrong, I'll pull you back. That's Christianity. How do you feel about the rules? These rules are not burdensome. If you truly experience Jesus, you'll want to please him. You know, I'm, I'm not perfect in my marriage at times. I don't always do the things I should do right. But the truth is, I really love my wife. And so really overall, the project of trying to be a good husband is not burdensome to me. Because I love my wife, I'm yoked to her, she inspires me, and I want to be the best husband I can be. I get it wrong from time to time, at which point she's not quite playing the role of Jesus here. I mean, she doesn't get to completely tell me what to do, but you know what I mean. You get, you get the picture. When you're in relationship and you really love someone, it's not burdensome. When you know something will please them, you do it joyfully. If we've really met Jesus, is there anything he could ask of us that you'd say no to? Finally then, coming back to this test of orthodoxy in chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Um, we get some insights here into the ancient heresy. Could I have the next slide, please? Um, and the ancient heresy appears to be something to do with the person of Jesus, that uh, his status as the Son of God, his status as, the, um, uh, as truly human and truly divine. And I won't get into all of that partially because of time and partially because there can't be that much certainty ex about exactly what folks were teaching. There's some speculation. But John is keen to say he did not come only with water but came by water and blood. In all probability... That's saying he did, it's not only at his baptism that he was revealed as a son of God, but also in his death, uh, his blood. So water representing baptism, blood representing his death. And then he goes on to say, and the spirit testifies. And he goes on to say, these three testify, the spirit, the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. Now, probably this is... Referring back to Deuteronomy 17, where under the law, you should only believe a testimony if it's established by more than one person. And so two or three, and, and uh, earlier, Illumide referred to another reference to this, where it says, uh, where Jesus says, if, if two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'll be there in the midst. It's got this idea 
that's prevalent in the Old and New Testament, that com- community is important. Um, actually being with other Christians means God reveals himself in a way that is complementary to, but different, how he'll reveal, you, reveal himself uh, to you if you're on your own. So community is important. And it's very important when you get converging testimony. I'd love to give you 10 minutes on that. But if you're going to believe something, it's good to corroborate it from different sources. So what does, what does John mean by the spirit, the water and the blood? Well, how long have you gone? We can go through all the different theories. This is one of the more contested verses in the New Testament. I'll give you my theory uh, and then you can go and do your own research. But this is a fairly commonly held view. First of all, water and blood. Yes, they're a reference to the earthly life of Jesus, who Jesus is revealed as, the Son of God at his baptism. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then in, in his blood, in his crucifixion, he is revealed as the one who atones, the Lamb of God. And in all of this, the Spirit seals both the baptism, this is my, the, the, the dove descending on Jesus, and at, in, in the resurrection. Jesus is revealed as the Son of God, that God approved of his sacrifice. How? By the power of God's Spirit. Furthermore, some have suggested that it's also not just talking about the way the Spirit revealed Jesus in his first coming, but also the way the Spirit works in our hearts. So John Wesley can say, my heart was strangely warmed. Uh, The two disciples on the road to Emmaus did not our hearts burn within us and maybe you've had that experience when Jesus has been proclaimed or in Christian worship where you felt your heart burning with passion for Jesus and you want to serve him well that's the work of the spirit too it's the work of the spirit in the earthly life of Jesus and the work of the spirit in our hearts water and blood may also refer to the sacraments to uh, baptism and to the Lord's Supper Well, all of these things are possible. God speaks. He spoke through the earthly life of Jesus. He speaks through the apostles' testimony. And he speaks to us today in our hearts. All of these things converge. The testimony converges. And John says, if all of that is functioning together in your life, then you'll know deeply. You'll have deep conviction. Now, of course, if you starve yourself of all those influences, if you never open the Bible, rarely go to church, and actually allow other voices to be crowding in and making their impact on you much more routinely, don't be surprised if your sense of conviction is diminished. But these three testify together, they converge. And the key test is to believe God. Trust him. Have faith in him. All right, much more we could say about that, but let me conclude. Because John refers here to overcoming the world. Could I have a final slide, please? Overcoming the world. And specifically refers to the fact that this is eternal life. To overcome the world. To overcome the world is to believe (coughs) that Jesus is the Son of God. And everything follows from that. Salvation is in him. And that's a challenge for all of us. Am I really going to believe that? Or am I going to hedge my bets? Loads of people in church are hedging their bets. In fact, probably we're all doing it to some extent. I'll have a little bit of Jesus as the son of God. 
but just in case he isn't, I'll, and you put whatever else, you know, we're off interested in. It'd be different for each of us. John says, if you really want to win in life, if you want to overcome, then you've got to put all your eggs in Jesus' basket. Not just some of them. In the Revelation, uh, in, the book, in the book of Revelation, uh, in chapters 2 and 3, you can go and check it out for yourself, at the end of each of... Uh, Jesus uh, gives some feedback to seven different churches. And at the end, he always says, to him that overcomes, to the one who overcomes, I will. And it's always a promise in different ways of eternal life. How to think like a winner? The Christian answer is, put your trust in Jesus Christ and you win. And you win big. Put your trust in anything else and disappointment is coming your way. How should we do this? We should become wise in the gospel, able to test the spirits. We should seek the spirit to give birth in us bowels of compassion towards others. And we should joyfully embrace and seek to obey the commands of Jesus. They're not burdensome. They are the ways that we become the people we were designed to be. God bless you.